Podo. You're listening to Movers and Shakers, a podcast about living with Parkinson's. The show is generously sponsored by Boardwave, an exclusive European networking community for software CEOs. Boardwave is a passionate supporter of Cure Parkinson's. For more details on the charity's progress around research and its fundraising, please visit cureparkinsons.org.uk. Hello and welcome to Movers and Shakers. I'm Gillian Lacey-Solomar. And we're back in the pub for a moan and a laugh. Today we're not going to be just moaning and laughing, but I reckon we may be somewhat shocked by some of what we hear. Why? Well, the topic's a side effect of drugs. We thought we'd split this into positive and negative and get the rather unpleasant ones out of the way today and leave the positive ones until next week. So let's dive in. But a couple of things before that. First of all, let's see who's here. Rory Kathleen-Jones. Nicholas Morstan. Jeremy Paxman, halfway through a scorch egg. <laughs> Mark Monell. And there's no Paul, but Paul has... Had his operation, you'll all be pleased to brilliantly. And he's recorded an audio diary for us, so here he is. Hello, Paul Mayhew Archer here with the latest in my audio diaries about my deep brain stimulation operation. This evening is Sunday evening, and I've just spent the last two and a half hours watching Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, which was thrilling and full of fantastic effects. So it was rather, in fact, reminiscent of my operation, which I had last Thursday, which was also amazing and full of effects. And one of the most amazing effects in Mission Impossible was that Tom Cruise, who is about 61, looked 45. And I've seen a photograph of myself since I had the operation, and I look much younger. I mean, I don't look like Tom Cruise, obviously, but at least I look a bit younger than I did, more animated. And that's before I've even had the um, electrode switched on. What they do in the operation in Oxford is that they put the holes in the skull, they've drilled the holes, they've put the electrodes into the holes, and now they leave them for my brain to recover from the operation, and then they switch me on. They switch me on, in fact, in in six weeks' time. January the 2nd is the day that has been allocated to it, just after January the 1st. So January the 1st is New Year's Day, then January the 2nd, and they switch me on. I mean, obviously, just after New Year's, they'll be pissed out of their skulls, but we can't have everything, can we? Anyway... They'll switch me on on January the 2nd and it'll be the start of a new, exciting new year, an exciting new time. I should also say at this point how incredibly touched and humbled I have been by all the wishes of well that I've received and all the things that people have done for me and to help me, and particularly my family. I, it's extraordinary to think really that I had no idea how deeply worried and anxious and concerned my family would be. And I've also been very struck by the the friendship that we've had from from people, the lifts we've had, uh, also the chocolate. I've had loads of chocolate from people. It's absolutely fantastic. And they say, enjoy it, you know, while you can. So I've been enjoying as much chocolate as I possibly can. And Julia's even relented and let me have as much chocolate as I like just to celebrate my, my operation. So that's all been rather splendid. All's looking really well. I've had no side effects from the operation. I've had a sort of sense of euphoria about it. The only slight side effect I've had is that I've dribbled rather a lot, which is uh, probably the only thing you'll remember from this audio diary. So I won't mention it again, but I'm sure I'll get that under control soon. And nothing else has really got to worry me at all at the moment. And I'm looking forward to, to a great future. 
The most exciting thing about the ending of Mission Impossible this evening was it said, the end of part one, there's more to come, there's more excitement, and so I, so I hope it will be the same with my, with my life. I look forward to trying to entertain people again and uh, have a good time in the future and do more podcasts and meet more people and share more experiences of Parkinson's. So thank you for all your attention and not goodbye, but au revoir. Wasn't that amazing? And we've seen the photos, and he does actually look younger, doesn't he? He does already look younger. He's not had it switched on yet, so we'll hear more from him later. And it all went without a hitch. After all that... After all that drama of the first cancellation... It's kind of hard not to worry, though, you know. It's a brain operation. I thought Julie looked so delighted in that picture, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. So relieved. Right, so back then to side effect of drugs that we're talking about. So, obviously, there are loads and loads. I've been looking at the packaging on my own drugs, and there are 26 listed for Madapar, and I wanted to ask Nick to read them out, and he flatly refused because there's so many of the bloody things. So, let me just mention a few of them. There is... I mean, this comes from, actually, the Parkinson's Foundation, which is the largest uh, charity for Parkinson's. They talk about depression, hallucination hoarseness, difficulty swallowing, abdominal pain. They seem very obsessed with vomiting. They talk about vomiting, bloody vomit, and separately vomit that looks like coffee grounds. So apparently you should be very worried by those. And then there are all the impulse control disorders like gambling, excessive sex. This, this is, this is uh, not it's just from, miserable, isn't it? These are not from the same drug. It is actually. I was surprised. I thought that was from the other set of drugs, and it is more from the other set of drugs, but no, Madapar lists it as well. Right. Explicitly gambling, sexual interest, uncontrolled shopping and binge eating. I mean, the impulse disorder aspects are special to this class of drugs, but all the other ones you've mentioned um, could be equally arise from something like ibuprofen or statins. Absolutely. All drugs have, all drugs have side effects, don't they? I mean, I've got the list of side effects for my statins here. It's much the same as the list of the side effects for these, apart from the ones, the impulse control aspects. Yeah, for me, the side effects that I was warned about, and it it was quite a start warning, was when I went on the agonists, was about excessive gambling, uh, sex addiction, and so on. It wasn't wasn't quite clear to me whether my consultant was trying to put me off or not. (laughs) (laughs) Have you had any, she said? (laughs) No, I've stayed... Incredibly boring. The only side effect I've had is I fell over rather badly a few weeks ago, um, and now I've got a false tooth, and I, I think that that is uh, a side effect of Parkinson's. Oh right. Is it a side effect, or is it the Parkinson's itself, though? Oh, that's a very good question. Mm. Anyway, I, I'm trying not to whistle through my first false tooth, so <laughs> I will be concentrating very hard during this episode. I, mean, I, as I've mentioned many times on this podcast, suffer from nightmares and acting out nightmares, parasomnia. But it's never been explained to me whether these are a symptom of the condition or whether these are a consequence of the drugs. Hmm. Jeremy, how about you? Well, I've never had any side effects. I've never had any effects, full stop. <laughs> as far as I can see. Sure you're not on the placebo? I, I, I might as well be on the placebo, frankly. I can't, I can't see that I have any, they have any effect upon me. I have to say, you seem a bit perkier this, this week than you have some previous weeks. So maybe you've taken something new. Uh-huh. Well, maybe, maybe it's that half pint of bitter that's doing it. Probably, yeah. Yeah, and the Scotch egg, definitely. I mean, we've um, discussed your belief that the drugs don't have an actual effect, and they could be as good as placebos or as, as ineffective as placebos. I mean, I was the um, subject of an involuntary experiment on Friday, 
when I rushed off to, to play in a golf competition first thing in the morning. And big I'd got, mistake. Big mistake. I had everything mm -hmm. organised, but I forgot to take any drugs at all that morning. Any drugs. And I did not take any of my drugs until 4 p.m. that day. Goodness. And the effect of me was quite remarkable. I was a, a very pronounced tremor. It even affected my speech. And I, it took me about 48 hours to recover to get back to normal. So over the weekend, the tremor was much, much worse than it has been. So I thought it was an interesting involuntary experiment. That. Hmm. Did your game improve, though? <laughs> no, it was absolutely hopeless. It's quite clear to me that the drugs definitely do work. And it's also clear to me that the drugs do have side effects. And I can tell another story about the side effects. I mean, I was slightly taken aback in the same way that you, Rory, were taken aback when... And the first time I visited the um, professor, the first question he asked me was, are you watching pornography at night? I thought, well, nobody's... Well, your usual habit of watching <laughs> during, during the day. On the bench. I was rather taken aback by that question because there is a, an appreciable risk. Some people say 15% of um, people who take the agonist principally rather than the L-dopa, but I may, may be corrected about that, but that's what my research is. I take 1.5 seven milligrams of Pramipexel Mylan every morning. And that was doing a fairly good job at con controlling my tremor because it, it acts particularly on tremor. You're, the professor put that up to 3.2 milligrams, and it is fair to say, although I'm not going into any details, I did have some rather disturbing thoughts as a result, which I immediately reported to the professor, who took me down to 1.57, and the thoughts went away as quickly as they had come. So there is no doubt... We will imagine the worst. You, you can worst. imagine the worst. There is no <laughs> doubt that the uh, drugs have, have that side effect. How I've, about you, Mark? Well, can have that side effect. Well, I, I think it's terribly difficult to disentangle the Parkinson's, the drugs, and your general personality. Yeah. I think mm. I've always been quite impulsive. Now, <laughs> I actually have not, as far as I'm aware, had many side effects, but my wife, Jo, persuaded the consultant to lower my dose of... Rapinarol. Rapinarol, yeah. that's, that's an agonist. Yeah. Rapinarol to four milligrams from eight milligrams because she said I was getting compulsive and impulsive. And I said, well, what evidence? What do you mean? Mm. She said, you're always on your laptop. Now, to <laughs> me, the laptop is the window to the world. I listen to music on it. I write on it. I research Parkinson's, research news stories. I do everything on it. And I said, that really hasn't changed at all since the drugs or since the Parkinson has it. I'm always on my laptop. She said, no, but you didn't used to be at home. <laughs> so when it was at work, it didn't bother her, but she thought I was going to be sort of... I have noticed one disturbing side effect, which is the dyskinesia in my right arm. Well, it's present, and it's, but it now has a really bad effect on me because my right arm is recovering from the broken elbow, and I suddenly have spasms, and that is incredibly oh, painful. Okay. So I'm kind of wondering about whether my drugs should be adjusted, but it's so difficult to know or to, you know... To, and can they be I, adjusted I, in the short term? Yeah, and well, then down the Let's ask somebody who knows yeah. the answer to these questions. How about that? We have with us Professor Alistair Noyce, who I came across many years ago when he was a humble registrar at the National Hospital, but now he's a professor in his own right with a big team doing lots of research who knows a thing or two about this. Now, tell us, how, how do we know whether it's side effect or actually the Parkinson's? Thank you for inviting me. So um, I think it can be really difficult because Parkinson's disease is also associated with a lot of the things that, that have come up. And then the medication can often make things worse. And so your doctor usually tells you about the side effects that happen commonly or the side effects that don't happen so commonly, but if they do can be quite serious. And so um, that's where we start to think about the things like impulse control behaviours. 
When I'm starting people on medicine, I usually mention things like nausea, vomiting, postural lightheadedness. Some of the more alarming vomiting scenarios you mentioned at the beginning, Gillian, they really shouldn't happen if you've got Parkinson's and you're taking your medication only if you had another problem as well, like a, a, like a stomach ulcer or, or, or a kind of bleeding source or things like that. I tell people about lightheadedness. Parkinson's can cause your blood pressure to drop and then the medication as well compounds that and makes blood pressure drop. So when people stand from a seated or a, a lying position, they get lightheaded. I often find that if the diagnosis is secure, if people almost certainly have Parkinson's, then, then actually they need the dopamine and so they don't get so much in the way of nausea and vomiting. But I still always give people some anti-sickness drugs for the first week or so as well when we start medicine. And then onto the impulse control behaviors. So these are most associated with dopamine agonists, but they can still occur with levodopa. They're just less common with levodopa. And they take the form that you've described, hypersexuality, gambling, excessive spending, or reckless generosity, but also hobbying behaviors. So doing something that is of interest or is a pastime, but doing it more than one would normally do a hobby. So yeah. for very extended periods of time, or at times when people wouldn't normally do a hobby, like overnight. And so that's when impulsive so Paul, things Paul Mayhew Archer's um, stand-up comedy is obviously a side effect. He just can't stop telling jokes. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a happy side effect, yeah. isn't it? It's a happy side effect. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think it's fascinating. Raise lots of issues about both philosophical issues and more medical ones. But I mean, well, first of all, why is it? What, what, what is happening? And does dopamine have the same effect normally? Why does the agonist make you behave like this when our own natural mode dopamine doesn't, or at least not to the same extent? Well, I think, you know, dopamine has a number of different actions in the brain. And the effect or the manifestation of low dopamine that we see most visibly in Parkinson's is a reduction or a paucity of movement. And so when we start treatment, we're trying to improve the movement. But there are other pathways in the brain that dopamine contributes to, reward pathways, pathways that, if they're overstimulated, may lead to impulsivity. And the, the working assumption is that the movement pathway is most affected by the deficit, and so you try to restore the movement. And those other pathways, they may be slightly affected, but I not see. to the same extent. So when you throw dopamine into the system, those are all those then are, overactive. I see. There's all overflow. Exactly. I see. You were telling me that you prescribe differently according to the person's circumstances. I think we all should be prescribing according to people's circumstances. So what, what the NICE guidelines say is that when you're starting treatment for Parkinson's, your choices are monoamine oxidase inhibitor like risagiline, or levodopa, or a dopamine agonist like pramipexol or rapinarol. And that the decision should be based on the symptoms that someone has, but also their, their personal circumstances, how dominant one set of symptoms is versus the other. Some people just want to start with something very gentle, like risagiline, just boost what's already in the body. And other people very clearly need levodopa at the first appointment or the second appointment. And some people may opt for a dopamine agonist. You were telling me, though, that you prescribe differently for somebody who's in a relationship and out of a relationship, which is kind of fascinating. It's, it's not quite as black and white as that, <laughs> actually. So um, what I am nervous about doing is starting someone on a dopamine agonist that has a very poor social support system. And so to your point, Mark, you said that it was actually your wife 
your wife's comments yeah. to the consultant that ultimately wound down the, the dopamine agonist or a pinarol. And so really I'm, I'm looking for a situation where if I start an agonist, the patient can tell me what's going on, the person affected can tell me what's going on, but also so can a close proxy, a, a close partner, a, partner. A, a spouse or a long-term partner. Because sometimes the person who you're looking after may say, everything's fine, everything's fine. And then That's the spouse is in the yeah, background saying sense. everything that is that not makes fine. Sense that if you're starting somebody off where there may be these grave side effects, that they should be have a partner who's able to be candid about it, whereas the patient it may not be candid about exactly. it. Exactly. And that may not be deliberate. It may just be a, a lack of mm. insight about how can much I, of particular problem... Can I ask you a question problem. about the incidence? Yeah. yeah. The leaflet that comes with my Pramipexol says that the risk of impulse control is uncommon, may affect up to one in 100 people, which is not consistent with what I've read elsewhere. For example... I've read on the internet, says that the, it may occur in up to, this is agonists, up to 15%. What's your experience? I think even the 15% may be a conservative estimate because the way that this information is gleaned from people on dopamine agonists is by asking them whether they have any of those symptoms it's through self-report questionnaires. And of course, people downplay that and say, no, no, not doing any of that, not doing any of that. But actually, if you if you go through interviews with partners, with other kind of nearest and dearest, actually the, the prevalence looks to be a little bit higher than that. But it's clearly the prevalence and how much of a problem these things are is related to the dose and pre-morbid, as you said, again, you know, if you've always tended a little bit towards impulsivity, then throwing a dopamine agonist into that may worsen things. I just want to be very careful because these are very good drugs, very good yes. for the symptoms of Parkinson's. As you said, when you I, went I, to play golf, you I were really affected for I two days. I to be deprived of those, those drugs at all. But, but they should be discussed at every single consultation. And you do have to dig because if you just ask one question, people tend to downplay anything. You really have to prod and poke and, and, then, you, and then you find maybe there is something. And, and then you need to be ready to I reduce. As a patient, it felt to me as if it was a very knife-edged decision. And now I've been on it, I don't think it is. Well, now I've not had these compulsive behaviours. Are you trying to make the patient make a 50-50 decision? Or are you giving them some assessment of the risk? I mean, if I'm told it's 15%, it's a slightly different one from if I'm told it's one in a hundred. So it's quite key as to how you portray it, isn't it? The way I frame this discussion is to say that we will have a conversation about impulsivity and, and reel off what those symptoms might be at every single consultation going forwards. And I will also make sure that it's documented in the letters because it's very clear from lots of anecdotes, but also stories that have made it into the national press that some patients have not been monitored properly and then they've run into real difficulty with excessive spending and, and yes, the like. Yes, that's absolutely true. And, and what the leaflet doesn't, doesn't make clear, but it's probably because it's so obvious anyway, is that the risk is directly related to the dose. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it, will it, everyone it, get it on a higher enough dose? Probably, but you can also get impulsivity on a very low dose as yes. well, and I've, I've, I've seen that as well. And it can be that you have impulsivity on a dopamine agonist and the dopamine agonist is ultimately stopped and then levodopa is given instead and it brings back some of the impulsivity. So it's, it's just managing these things. I mean, we always hear about the stuff, the bad stuff. Is it, does it encourage bad stuff, stuff that society disapproves of? Because frankly, I don't see why I shouldn't research bands intensively during the night if I want to. 
because I like that and I enjoy it. I totally agree. And so this is this is where we get to the point where you know what is excessive hobbying for one person may not actually be that much of a problem. So a patient who spends six or seven hours gardening a day, they good. really enjoy doing it. But if they were doing that in the evening and overnight, that may be a, you know that's disrupting their sleep. But it's, it's been used as evidence in mitigation in serious sexual cases. It has. The example we give when it comes to agonists is a particular type of hobbying called punding, which is purposeless hobby pursuits. But if you're doing research into music and you enjoy doing that and that's not hurting anyone and, you know, you're building knowledge and it's mental stimulation, then that's not really a big problem. That wouldn't be, for me, the, a reason um, Mark, to reduce. Uh, what this says is that the behaviour can range from innocuous-seeming excessive internet use, so they were thinking about you, to hoarding, interesting, and charity donations. That sounds like a good thing. Reckless generosity. <laughs> yeah. That's it. We, yeah. we should give more of it. Reckless round <laughs> buying. <laughs> Punding. That's an interesting one. Yes. Jeremy, were you ever warned about any of your drugs? Is your, your Never know. Right. So, well, I've had no effect from either. Well, maybe they've made you obsessively um, gloomy. Maybe. Maybe they've made you obsessively interested in Scotch eggs, for all we know. That is a possibility. Yeah. The, the, the side effect which we've not discussed at any point, mainly focused on impulsivity, is a side effect that one can get with long-term levodopa use, and that's motor fluctuations. And I think that's... What are motor fluctuations? But motor fluctuations are when you have episodes where the tablets are not effective, and so you have either dose failures or wearing off. The converse of that is when you have too much effect from your medication, and that's when you get involuntary movements that we call dyskinesia or, oh, or dystonia. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you raised that because I spoke to somebody yesterday who we're going to call Martin, though it's not his name, who had so much myopathy that he collapsed, and I'd like you to hear his story. Sure. I had caught COVID, and it, it caused me to have to take a lot more in the short term, and I never fully recovered from that moment. Um, the ons and offs that I've been experiencing became very extreme indeed, from extremely manic activity through to a kind of brain draining sensation of losing all the liquid from my brain and me collapsing to the floor. Literally uh, collapsing. Literally collapsing to the floor and in a state of what I described at the time as paralysis. So I would sit that out until the next on and I would leap up again. And, and, and manically charge around doing my exercises, etc. <laughs> and how many times a day did this happen? Every every two hours with my on and off cycle. Goodness. It's very alarming. And I also developed a lot of sense of agitation at this time and emotions that are not normally associated with me came upon me regularly as a rage. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Very teary, apologetic moments, not five minutes later. And... A, a fear of suffocation as well, because I was paralysed on a bed at night. That's how it felt. And the soft furnishings were around me and I felt I couldn't lift my my head to breathe. So we, we called 999 eventually and I was very alarmed. I thought I was going into a coma. I said my tearful goodbyes to my family, thinking I was going to be in a, a P, PVS all the rest of my life. But I was sedated and I came around the next day and I eventually I was, it was through a hospital and through... Uh, stay at a care home for seven weeks. I, I was gradually talked through what had actually happened to me, which was because of too much levodopa, I, I was experiencing psychosis. You recovered from that now? Yes, I, the, the, the experts at the, at the care home and my specialist consultant was were, were excellent and they schooled me through a incremental 
dilution of of my medicine regime but more interestingly the recovery was through like someone learning to walk again through associating pleasurable calm activities with movement so when i thought i was paralyzed it was actually an anxious perception and instead what i needed to do was to sing a song stretch doing tai chi or dancing in a in strictly or waltzing around my room to make allow myself to move and to associate pleasure with patience and calmness including including not getting excited when you could move just being calm about it that's horrifying yeah really terrible and you know i i was shocked to find he was on the same dosage when he had this attack and got the psychosis as i i was on as well before my dbs what's that mean well it's a terrible story actually and there were several things in that that probably useful to mention i mean there are psychiatric symptoms associated with parkinson's like hallucinations and like delusions and like cognitive impairment that when you throw a lot of levodopa into the mix can all worsen and so it sounds like martin was fluctuating a lot and having doses every two hours having very high doses and and then that precipitated this psychotic episode but it highlighted a couple of other things to me as well one is that this all seemed to start with an infection and so if you've had parkinson's had it for several years then you can be very susceptible and vulnerable to the effects of infection. They can make your medication not work so well and therefore you need to increase the doses or they can make every dose of medication much more potent. And so that was the other thing, the, the kind of issue here around infection. And then the last thing that so either just... either they don't work at all or they work very well. They work unpredictably, well. yeah. And what typically then happens is someone makes a change. Someone inexperienced makes a change and that change may ultimately not turn out to be a good one and, and could lead to further problems. But the last thing this highlights for me is that our kind of current model of care for people with Parkinson's is not great because we tend to see people every six months, if you're lucky, every three or four months. But actually things can happen at any time and then it's important that you can access the people who, who know what they're doing as soon as possible. And so this kind of old model of appointments every six months doesn't necessarily tie in with when things are most needed. Yeah, this is really important. Yeah, we're really trying to push for access to a consultant you know, when one's in trouble. Would you support that? Absolutely. Or, or a specialist nurse. We're woefully under quota in terms of specialist nurses in most regions of the UK. And, and these are hugely experienced health professionals who know exactly what to do when the proverbial hits the fan. And so um, we certainly need more specialists, whether they're medics or nurses, to help manage these rocky spots. And if Martin had come to you, what would you have done just before he collapsed? Could he have averted it in some way? Potentially. I mean, I, um, you know, there was an article recently in one of the main neurology practice journals called The Art of Doing Nothing. So just seeing someone being aware of the situation, being ready to make a change, but not necessarily prematurely making a change that may ultimately lead to problems. That's a kind of important bit of it. And, we, you know, ideally you want to avoid a situation where people get admitted to hospital, their medication all gets it gets out of sync and messed up, and then they, they stay in hospital for a long time. Ideally, you manage these situations in a day case centre or as a hot appointment in the clinic. Alistair, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me. So if we think more broadly about the negative side effects of these drugs, if they're that bad, then presumably there have been several class actions against the makers of them. Is that right, Nick? I do not believe that is right. 
Class actions are extremely rare, mainly in consumer cases where there have been numerous claims in respect of a certain product and litigation has, been, has erupted in a number of different places and one, a judge calls them all in and he says, we're going to consolidate them all. I'm going to have one which is the representative action and I'm going to stay all the rest. The decision in the representative action will bind everybody else. So it's basically a sort of group litigation, but there have to have been a, a number, normally more than 40 claims made in respect of a particular consumer product before a judge will take the step, which is now called a class action in America and it's called group litigation in this country. But, I mean, just talking to people, it sounds like more than 40 people will have had problems with their sexuality so far, or any of those... So, so far as I can tell, there's only been one piece of group litigation relating to... Parkinson's medication, and that was in Australia. Uh, it's been reported in the paper that uh, 150 claimants have made complaint that they, they had suffered addictions, sexual addictions and other impairments as a result of taking these without having had due warning. My researchers do not reveal whether the settlement that was spoken about in the press was ever in fact reached. There's no, I can't find any record of it in any court in Australia, and I cannot find a record of any other group litigation anywhere in the world, even in the land of mad litigation in the United States of America. But that's really uh, surprising, yes. isn't it? Because so many people, and you heard, one has heard anecdotally, and I, I, I know it's true in certain cases, people have lost their homes because of mm-hmm. gambling addiction. You'd have I think that the reason is, is that they've always been completely transparent about the risks. Ah, yeah, we've disti- been warned. We've, we've been, been warned in distinction to the opioid scandal, where it was a campaign of deception. And people were given these drugs and addicted to these drugs and were given false information. And so as a result, there was a massive amount of litigation. But in relation to the risks that are associated with agonists, we have been warned. And we, everybody has taken these drugs with their eyes open. And that's why there's been no well, litigation. But it depends what you mean by eyes open. It's on a list, sure enough. But if it's not brought to your attention, it's number 25 well, it, on that list. If, of has, has well, any of us... It has been drawn to our attention. Yeah, it, it, I, I was... Repeating the start. Well, in fact, I was almost put off. Yes. It was almost too stark a warning. But, I'm not sure. But, I certainly wasn't warned absence, about the, the matter the absence of The absence of litigation speaks for itself. In contrast, however... This particular characteristic of the agonist has been used on a number of occasions, not as a defence to serious crimes of a sexual nature, but in mitigation when it comes to sentencing for committing the crimes of a sexual nature where there's been a plea of guilty. Researchers have been... It has been used in a number of cases to rather surprisingly good effect, bearing in mind people must know when they're taking these drugs that they have this characteristic and it can have these consequences. So can we just go around very quickly then finally and say is there anything that we've learned that would change our behaviour? Because for me there is. Well, I'll tell you what, what has really struck me is how bad the system is in terms of what happens between your appointments. One is disinclined to press the, the alarm button and call the consult or try and get in touch with the consultant, which is difficult enough anyway. I mean, my next appointment is June next year. There needs to be a lower level of contact. Yes, Parkinson's nurse or whatever, to be able to ask those sort of questions if you think something might be going wrong. Yeah. Here, so bloody here. I mean, there's a huge gap, isn't there, between the aspiration the professor had that we've all got for this sort of almost permanent contact and the actual reality of... I think, you know, I see mine every six months. I don't think uh, Martin had seen anyone for nearly two e- years. Exactly, and no, I, I, I just bumped into somebody the other day and chatting to them, and he still hadn't seen his, his neurologist who was diagnosed earlier this year. And lots of people you get on the Facebook site here who wait much longer. So the gap between the reality and the aspiration is huge, and I suspect growing worse. Yes. Come on, someone say something happy. Jeremy, say something happy. I think it was horrifying. 
<laughs> some, of the, some of the tales we were told there were really, really disturbing, I think. And I'm personally quite glad that I have no effect whatsoever from them. You don't have good effects or bad effects, it seems. No. Maybe you should stop, Jeremy. Maybe I should. I don't dare I, tell I you would that. Echo, I would echo Rory. I'm very, yeah. very lucky in that I am, for reasons that have been discussed, I am very well and regularly managed by my neurologist. And so he's been able to get a balance of the medication for me that works for me without side effects. Yeah, you're living I mean, in so trouble that when, with your when, So when a red flag went up, the, the adjustment was made and uh, the red flag was promptly lowered. But it depends critically on having regular contact with your clinician, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not to be underestimated. It's yeah. not just about convenience. It's about your whole life, potentially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You've been listening to Movers and Shakers with me, Rory Catherine-Jones, and my friends Gillian Lacey-Solomar, Mark Mardell, Paul Mayhew-Archer, Nicholas Mostyn, and Jeremy Paxman. The show is produced by Nick Hilton for Poddo. Our theme music is by Alex Stobbs and cover artwork by Till Lukat. Thanks again to Boardwave for their support. Please subscribe to get new episodes straight into your podcast app and do rate and review if you've enjoyed the show. We're also on Twitter at MoversAnd6, that's Movers and the number six. So please share the show there and email any thoughts or questions to feedback at moversandshakerspodcast.com. See you next week. <laughs>